Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Good evening, Horizon West Church. I want to take this opportunity to welcome you and thank you for coming out and uh, if we haven't met yet, again, my name is Austin, and I'm the Director of Missional Communities here. Um, I'm so excited to have this opportunity to open God's Word with you. Um, I, I did not push Chris out of the way and just jump up here, but I was invited up here. And so, Chris, I want to say thank you for this invitation. I don't take it lightly, um, the chance to open up God's Word. And, and so, uh, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate this opportunity. And so, um, we're going to continue this week. Last week, Chris started a, a new series called Rebuild in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there if you, or um, get there on your, get your Bible app and whatever. Um, as you're turning there, though, we're going to continue in that series. Um, and he started last week with the three prerequisites. This is why I didn't preach that one. Prerequisite? I can't say that word. Uh, for the prerequisites for renewal. And this week we're going to continue in looking at Nehemiah's preparation to rebuild. And so we're going to be in Nehemiah 2, but as you turn there, I want to pose a question. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you felt completely unprepared for what you were about to experience? I think we've kind of all been there before, right? Um, for me, as I kind of look back, that ha- that's happened multiple times throughout, the life of my, throughout my life, throughout the life of my ministry and all that. Um, but what really kind of stands out is uh, this one particular time. So if you don't know this about me, uh, my wife and I, Suzanne, she's down here on the front row, um, we were elementary school sweethearts. Um, I asked her to be my girlfriend in fifth grade, whatever that means, like fifth graders, that, you know. And I think she even told her mom that it means we could hold hands and not be made fun of at school. <laughs> and so elementary school sweethearts, we dated off and on all throughout uh, middle school, high school, got back to, together in college. And um, but I remember specifically one year, it was my birthday, um, about like 15, uh, I think it was my 15th birthday, um, she called me up, she said, hey, are you home? Yes. And she was so excited, she said, We're gonna, I want to bring you your birthday present. Like, I'm just, just so, so giddy about it, like, okay, yeah, perfect, I love presents, I love being praised, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I was so excited, so she walks in and she's carrying, kind of walking gingerly, she's carrying this thing, I think it was even covered like in a sheet or something, and she, and so I, I pull the sheet down, and all of a sudden, I had that overwhelming, like, feeling, that sense of, like, I have no clue what I have just gotten myself into, and I am completely unprepared for this, um, as she is holding in her hands a fish tank with about three or four different fish, and as a 15-year-old, like, most 15-year-olds probably would know how to take care of a fish. I did not, um, and I lacked the the... the responsibility, really, to, to take care of the fish. But I actually, I think if you, like, Google how to, how to, like, feed a fish, you, like, feed them, like, once a few days, and I did not, I didn't know that, and I wanted these fish to live, and so I was, like, every time I went to the bathroom, because I kept them in the bathroom, you know, 15-year-old, but um, every time I went to the bathroom, I just put a little more food in there, a little more food in there, a little more food in there, so by, like, three days, these things are, like, fat and happy, and then they just croaked over, and, and it was a sad day. Um, completely unprepared, completely unprepared for that. Um, and so we're going to talk tonight about a time or look at the life of Nehemiah and how he entered into a task way greater than just babysitting fish, right? Way greater than that. What God had called him to 
and his preparations and how he would enter into that prepared by planning to rebuild. By planning to rebuild. So um, if you have your Bibles back to uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, um, I'm going to cover a lot of Scripture. And so instead of just reading the whole thing, we're going to uh, walk through the Scripture as I make my... I have a few observations, um, and then we'll close with kind of an encouraging word. And so um, <clears throat> my first observation is this. Nehemiah's proximity. Nehemiah's proximity. More closely... A couple of proximities, right? Uh, proximity to the Lord. His proximity to the Lord. So look in Nehemiah 2, verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the t- or, or Nisan, or uh, Nisan is a car. Nisan, I don't know what that is. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now let's stop there. I know you're like, wow, we got the whole chapter and we're like three, three words in and we're stopping. But if you look at, so we're starting with this comparison of, of the month of Nisan. Now if you look at chapter 1, verse 1. See how chapter 1 starts? In the month of Chislev. And so if we're looking at the whole book, if we're reading the whole book in its context, we see two, two chapters back to back opening up talking about the month that they're in. Now the month of Chislev, as scholars believe, was the months around November or December. And the month of Nisan is, is uh, like around March to April. So there's a gap here of about four months or so. But it says in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the 20th year, so we know it, is, it was four months. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. For days. For days I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So we see in Chislev, is, is, in chapter 1, if you haven't read that, I encourage you to, but um, it's, we see days of prayer over the heartbreak of the, of the condition of, of the Israelites and of Jerusalem. And of the people of, of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was, a, was, a Jeru- uh, was an Israelite. So he had this heartbreaking moment where he wept and he fasted for days. So we see now in the first few words of chapter 2, days of prayer turned into months of prayer. Turned into months of prayer. So we can already see that Nehemiah is living in this kind of season of nearness of God, drawing near. God, what are you doing? Lord, you have revealed to me a broken heart. He's continually going back to that. So we see now the rest of chapter one is this like crazy, cool, elaborate prayer that includes all kinds of scripture and, and promises of God and about who God is. And um, it's really cool. So all of chapter one is a prayer. Now I want you to see, God, see Nehemiah's prayer and conversation with God in these next few verses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, when, now this is the month of Nisan. Now when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. So we know in chapter 1 that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He was a servant to the king. So when wine was before him, he took it up. Now I had not been sad in his presence. That's sad in the king's presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Did you catch it? So all of chapter one is this big elaborate prayer. And here we are in chapter two, and it says, 
In the middle of a conversation, Nehemiah says, and I prayed, and then I made my request to the king. So we see here that days in prayer turn to months in prayer, turn to moments in prayer. It's as if Nehemiah's life was so bathed in prayer that when he found himself in the situation for God to, to ask God for help, in the midst of a scary situation, he walked in the total dependence of God. His relationship with God was both planned and spontaneous. Was both planned. Now, here's what I mean by that. Think about this in terms of um, your relationship with your spouse or um, whatever that your relationship with your closest friend. It's not a growing relationship if it's just, if it's just planned or, or just spontaneous. Think of it like this. If I were to relegate my relationship with my wife to my 10 to 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes if you're super spiritual, right, of quiet time in the morning. Imagine if my relationship were relegated to just that. We could get a whole lot of talking and praying and, and searching each other's heart done in that first 30 minutes because my son's not awake yet, right? But, but then what happens later on when, when we forget to discuss dinner and she's like, hey, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, oh no, we didn't talk about that in our special time. Right? We can't, it has to be both. And not only that, but when we're talking about heart pursuit, when we're talking about pursuing after the Lord and pursuing after the things that he has for us, we have to be both planned where we sit down and we, have, we put away distractions and we expect to hear from God by listening to his word and reading his word and just sitting in silence. But it's also got to be throughout the day where we say, Lord, help me with this. Lord, Thank you for that. God, you are good. So we see Nehemiah's proximity to the Lord was based on an overflow of this time in the season that, that inter intersected his life in every moment of every day. So we see his proximity to the Lord, but we also see his proximity to the lost. His proximity to the lost. You see, the king had noticed Nehemiah's sadness was a sadness of the heart. It wasn't a sadness through sickness because he was the cupbearer. And now if you don't know what a cupbearer is, it's they take the wine and the food that has been prepared for the king. They take it through the cup, to the cupbearer. The cupbearer tastes it and eat it and, he, and they wait 10 minutes or so and to make sure he doesn't just fall over and die, right? They're going to make sure no one's trying to poison the king. That was, that was Nehemiah's job was to make sure no one was trying to poison the king. And we see that he, that the king noticed that he was different, that today was different, that there was something going on inside of Nehemiah, this sadness that was sadness of the heart. And the, you, don't, you don't allow a sick cupbearer to taste the, cup, the king's food, right? I'm not even going to mention COVID, but... And another interesting note from, from my studies was that this was a time when the Israelites, after exile, were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, who is an Israelite, is not back in Jerusalem. Why is that? Because he was cupbearer to the king. He was a servant in the per to the Persian king Artaxerxes. And more likely, he was a slave, held there against his will. We can see that, by the way, his heart is broken for the brokenness in Jerusalem. So even in his captivity, Nehemiah served the king with gladness. I think Nehemiah went through uh, Chick-fil-A 
um, job, job hiring uh, training, right? He was able to do a job where like 90% of the people are miserable. He was able to do it and say, my pleasure. <laughs> because he's influencing the king as to what was in his heart. Nehemiah's faithful prayer life affected how he interacted with those that he worked with and, how he, and those that he served under. And I think that should be the way that it is for us as well as we walk in the calling that the Lord has us to. There's a quote here that I want to put up. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I highly, highly recommend it. But she says this, the gospel life means you get close enough to people to put the hand of a stranger into the hand of a loving God. It means you're close enough to lost people and you're actually different enough from the lost people to put the hand, and it's as simple as putting the hand of the stranger into the hand of a loving God. It means interacting with those who are lost. There was a season in my ministry where um, I did college ministry and Pastor Chris knows that, knows that college ministry is, it, the college campus is just a lost, lost place. Where I, would, I, I literally had one day where I spent two hours talking with a guy who would identify as atheist or agnostic. And I was like, hey man, I'm really, this is a great conversation. Like, I want your number, I want to connect with you, but I have to go have lunch with my friend who's a Muslim. And I get, I get in the friend with my, uh, I get in the, the car with my friend, um, Ahmed, and, and I said, man, I just spent two hours talking to a guy that didn't believe in God. I'm like, can you believe that? He's like, oh my gosh. Of course, then we had conversations about who God was and, and what that looked like. But it was a season in which my life and my ministry just, I had to go through such refining, a moment where I was like, times where I was like, Lord, I don't know what to say here. I don't know what to do. And so it's actually my proximity with the lost that made me a little bit closer to the Lord to say, God, I am completely and totally dependent on you and, and what it is that you're calling me to do here. So question, Christian, how close are you to those in your life who are lost? Is your prayer life influencing how you influence those around you. How we handle those situations directly impact our witness of the gospel. So Nehemiah spent a season faithfully serving and faithfully praying, but he also spent a season faithfully planning. That's my second observation is Nehemiah's plan. Let's look here in uh, chapter two, verse six through eight. It says, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they, knew let, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And, let, and, let, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and of the fortress of the temple and of the wall of the city. And for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So for months, Nehemiah prayed, but we also see for months, Nehemiah planned. And we can see that because he knew exactly how long it would take. The king asked, how long are you going to be gone? And it pleased him when, when I gave him a time. He was able to tell him. He knew exactly what authorization he would need. He, he, he requested so much further to say, king, give me a letter to, so that I can give it to these people. He knew who to give them to, the governors beyond the province beyond the river. And he knew what supplies he would need. He knew the name of the, of the keeper of the supplies and what they would need. 
You see, it's, almost, it's as if Nehemiah planned to be used by God or prayed to be used by God and planned as if he knew God was going to use him. His plan was so bathed in prayer that when it came time to in, in the moment with the king, he knew exactly what to say when he was ready. In fact, look at what it says in chapter 1, verse 11. He's praying here. He's closing out his prayer to the Lord. And God, give me success, give success to your servant and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So he prayed for success and mercy from the king. Of course, that would be God's success and mercy, but it would come through the king. Nehemiah prayed for an opportunity to present his plan to the king, and he, and he planned and was and prepared. When the chance came, he made his request. But most importantly, so he knew exactly how long it would take, what authorization he need. But most importantly, he knew where to place his trust. He knew where to place his trust. He said, it was the hand of God. It was the hand of God, his favor that was on me. Yes, the king may have granted that, that he didn't just take away my life because there was a moment in which Nehemiah said, I was filled with great fear. So he had prayed, he had planned, but still here's a moment of fear. I think one a reason for that fear could be that the king, um, these kings just had such great power that if something offended them, they could say, you're dead, and it would be the end. And so he was fearful that that, that that might happen to him, but the Lord obviously provided. But I also think there was kind of a sense of fear in which he had been praying for months and days and, and moments, and, and here was this opportunity now where God had placed a heart, a, a, a purpose for him in his heart, and here was a chance for him to say, oh, God, open the door. God, this is, this is my chance. This is an opportunity to, to, for you to fulfill your purpose, and so, Lord, fulfill it in me. And so that moment of trust was found in the Lord, his hope was in God, so he planned. And his hope was in God, not the political power. So where are you placing, placing your trust today? As 2021 kind of unfolds, I think it's very evident where some of America, and, and I would say, potentially say a lot of Americans place their trust. Whether it's a man in office or a man to be in office there's, an, there's this hope for prosperity. There's this hope for ease. There's this hope for um, whatever that looks like. Oh, these pe this person in power has the same beliefs as me, and I'm going to trust that they're going to look out for my best interests. And... But this need not be. Our trust as Christians, as we live in life, as Nehemiah placed it, can only be in God. Our favor, the favor of God is what uses and moves political powers, not political powers to move the favor of God. So I encourage us to, to consider where is our trust being placed in the season. So another piece of evidence that shows us where Nehemiah's hope was, was what he did once he arrived in Jerusalem. And that's my next observation. Nehemiah's pause. Nehemiah. So we've seen that his proximity to the Lord and to the lost. We've seen his plan. Now look at what happens next once he arrives 
in Jerusalem in chapter in verse 9 through 16. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, exactly like he said would happen. Now the king sent me with the officers of the king and horsemen. So the king actually gives him um, some protection. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by the night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. You probably don't want to live close to that one. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were there broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now there's a whole lot going on there. There's a whole lot going on there, but Hear me out. When, so when Nehemiah, when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, what does he do? He waited for what? Three days. For three days, he paused. Now, when you look at um, how this text was originally written, Ezra, the book of Ezra, who was a priest, and Nehemiah were all one book. And, there's a, and there's a, there's, um, when you look at Ezra, who was a priest who traveled back to Jerusalem, much like Nehemiah, look what he did when he arrived in Jerusalem. This is Ezra 8, 31 through 32. Then he departed from the, from the river Ahava on the, on the 12th day, on the first month, to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was on us. Now, that's Ezra trusted in the Lord as well. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes on the way. So he actually get, did get attacked. It was the Lord that saved him then. Um, 32. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained for three days. And then it goes on to say, and then he opened up, the, as the priest would do, open up the scroll and, and read the word of God to the people of God. So Ezra and Nehemiah, we find as, on the arrival of uh, their journey in Jerusalem that they wait three days. And I think it's because this, they, they knew something very important. It's, it's that a work that God starts, God must sustain. A work that God starts, God must sustain. And that's this idea that as God has given them a, a journey and, and a purpose and a, and a heart for what is happening, they're going to make sure they're walking in step, not before or not behind what the Lord has done. So this past Christmas um, was uh, my son's kind of, kind of his first Christmas. It was actually his second. He's, he was 18 months old. And uh, but so that means his first year, he was just like six months old. Like we were just kind of celebrating the fact that he can sit up on his own and we were opening his gifts for him and you know how all that goes. Um, so this year we're like really excited. Like he's going to, he's going to play with toys and he's just going to love it. And um, I did not realize the amount of assembly that would happen prior leading up to the days of Christmas. Um, and so we got Cannon this year. One of his big gifts was a Jeep right? One of those little things he can sit in and drive. He can't really drive it himself, but um, it came with a remote control, so he can just kind of sit and wave, and, and I drive it. But um, it came in a box, and it had to be assembled. And, and there was one day I was just, I was home by myself, and, and I thought, yeah, I'm gonna put this thing together. So I did what, what any man would do. I opened it all up, and I, get it, I set everything out, and I set the instructions to the side, and I just start putting it together. 
And I got all the way, I got it all the way done, and it, and it, it looked awesome, except there was something, it was kind of like, had a little lean to it. I'm like, what is going on? So then, like any man would do, I, would ta- I took the instructions, and, I, and at that point, I looked through, and I realized in step two that there was something that I should have done, which, enge- which would have engaged the shocks, which would have kept, the- yeah. So I had to go all the way back, I had to undo everything I had just done, and I go back to step two, then to redo everything. And I, and I think about my life, I'm like, what if I just would have paused and would have read the instructions? And, I, the, and yeah, had I just taken a pause, I could have potentially avoided the anger, which no one was around except for the Lord to, to, to hear me say, but in the time to, to do it right. There's a benefit in taking a pause before the work. Not during the work, but before the work. And notice, though, this is an active pause for Nehemiah. This is an active pause. He's... He's surveying under the darkness of night. He's, um, he hadn't told anyone of the work that he was about to do. And it's, it's as if um, all of these people are around and he's like, yeah, you see what's going on? Like, look at all these gates. Look at all this wall that's going to have to be replaced. But the Lord has placed it in me. You have no clue and you don't know what's going to happen. I think there's kind of two sides of the coin here because there's some of us in this room that need to see that Nehemiah took a specific deliberate pause. He didn't, he didn't hear from God and take the direction from God and just run with it in a different way. He said, okay, Lord, I receive, the, I receive what you've given to me and I will follow you in this. On the flip side of that, there's, this is an active pause. And so there's some of us in here that, that need to know that he's here. He has traveled. He's made the journey. He's at the, he's at the wall. He's inspecting it. He's, he's ready. He's looking over the conditions. And he's waiting for the Lord to say, let's get started. Nehemiah recognized the desire to build came from the Lord. In verse 12, again, it says, I told no one what, what my God had put into my heart. And he was careful not to get ahead or behind God in his work. When... Um, God had kind of given Suzanne and I a desire to start our family. I got emotional in the first service, and I'm going to get emotional again, so just kind of bear with me. But um, <clears throat> he gave us a desire to adopt, and, and I was doing a, um, I remember I was, I was doing an assignment for um, seminary, and I just had this overwhelming sense, like I'm literally just weeping in my, in my living room because the Lord is telling like, this is the plan that I have for you is adoption. And so Suzanne gets home and, and we have this conversation and, and, uh, and I just was like, let's get started. Like, let's do it. And, and we were so anxious. We were so ready. But then we just kind of felt this sense of pause. Like God saying, um, wait. And we were just kind of, okay, Lord, so we started to research. Uh, do we want to do international or domestic? Do we want to do open or closed? Do we want to do private or, or foster care? What, what, what does that look like? And uh, we started kind of preparing and planning. And um, we made these like uh, stuff to sell, uh, to, to raise money. And we took them to, we didn't tell our parents. We didn't tell any, we told one set of friends. And um, three weeks later, that friend that we told called Suzanne. And she said, she said, I'm going to try to tell you this without crying. And I'm going to try to tell you this without crying. Um, a friend of mine just posted on Facebook that she's um, 
pregnant unexpectedly, and she can't keep a baby. She's, she, she's thinking about adoption. <laughs> and here we were. It was the day. The, I didn't even tell this to the first service. It was the day that Suzanne, had, we, Suzanne and I had printed off paperwork to do a home study. We, the day of, we got that call. And we talked to our son's birth mom. And I can't help but think, like, what if we had not paused? Like, what if we had just chose a direction and went with it, even though we knew it was what God was calling us to? How different our family would look. There's just something about knowing that what God is calling you to, he is leading you through. There's something about a pause. And that's what Nehemiah did. He waited, he prayed, he planned, and he paused. And that leads me to my next and final observation, Nehemiah's purpose. Nehemiah's purpose uh, in chapter 2, 17 through 20, it says this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. So uh, Nehemiah is talking to the Israelites, to the priests and the nobles and the people who are going to do the work now. He's, he's got a sense of the Lord saying, let's go. Let's start the work. Do you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Jerusalem, the people of God, in ruins. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. I told them that the Lord has provided everything up until this point. The hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also for the words that the king had spoken. So not only has he, the, the Lord provided for Nehemiah, the Lord has moved the king to this point. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, this is, this is profound, this is huge. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you, opposition, have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah knows that he needs the people of God to accomplish the will of God. Nehemiah's faith joined with God's movement, joined with the king's um, resources, encouraged others to believe and join in. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. He's, Nehemiah says, see the problem. The people of God are in ruin. The city where these people live is ruined. See the trouble we're in, but then also see the solution. Feel the favor of God. God has gotten me to this point and he will continue to sustain us. Nehemiah's purpose was the glorification of God through the restoration of his people. Because why? Because God had promised that his people would be restored. And so he prayed for God to fulfill his promise. His purpose was the Lord's blessing. It was also Nehemiah's purpose that gave him assurance in the midst of opposition. So as these three men come and, and ask, what is it, what is it that, her, that he was doing? He went back to the purpose. He said, it is the God of heaven 
that will make us prosper. That word prosper there is the same Hebrew word that can be found in Psalms 1, 1 through 3, and it says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That is the prosperity that Nehemiah is speaking to his opposition. It is a prosperity rooted in the word of God. It is a prosperity that is, that is found in a love for God and for his purpose and for his will. And it is a prosperity that God defines, that God establishes, that God sets. This definition of prosperous success is is established by God and defined by God. So the application, what, what does this mean for us? We have a couple of observations of Nehemiah, and that's great. And I think the temptation, though, is for some of us to say, well, that's Nehemiah. Like, he's some great, he, of course he had great faith, and God did great things. He's a Bible character, right? But if you look, it, it, it says that Nehemiah was not a prophet, was not a priest, but he was a servant. He was an Israelite that had a heart for the mission. It said he was sad. He was brokenhearted. He was very much afraid. He was completely dependent on the Lord and he faced opposition. Our goal, though, is not to be like Nehemiah. If anything, I think we see that Nehemiah is, is, is kind of like us. Our goal is not to be more like Nehemiah. Our goal is to be more like Jesus. Our goal is to be more like Jesus, and we can use Nehemiah's example to examine our own heart. So I have a question tonight I want to close with. Where do you feel God is calling you to rebuild? Where do you feel God is calling you to rebuild? Perhaps you're in a season of heartbreak, a season where you feel distant from God. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in the spirit. We can trust that God is near to us in seasons of prayer, in seasons of heartbreak, in seasons of lostness. We just have to look for him. We have to spend time planned in his word. We have to spontaneously think about him and focus on his word throughout the day. So consider this question. What are you asking God for in your prayer life? Are you asking him to do big things in you and through you? Are you specifically focused on the words that he has for you? Maybe you're in a season of planning. Nehemiah inspected the conditions of the wall as he planned. What is the condition of your heart? Are you trusting that the Lord has a, will, has a plan for you? Are you acting as if he'll accomplish it? Maybe you need to be in a season of pause. Maybe you found yourself walking. You've gotten, you've gotten out ahead of the Lord. 
Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We can have a desire, and I think a lot of our desires are God-given. But if we're, not, if, we're walking, if we're not walking in through our calling with the Lord, then we're outside of what he has for us. And maybe we have a, we're in a season where we're questioning our purpose. God, what is, what is it that you have for us in this time? We can know that God has given us a desire for his people. And what was at stake in the times of Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall and the gates of Jerusalem. What's at stake now, what God is doing now is building his kingdom through his people. So God's purpose is this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you even to the ends of the earth. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.